Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And this week's show is all about the 2022 FIFA World Cup again, with Morocco making history as the first African team to reach the semi-finals, but not able to go all the way. We take a look at the Atlas Lions' amazing run in Qatar, and we look back at some past World Cups and talk to 2002 winner Kaká of Brazil. It was really special to be among that group and to have been world champion in 2002. It brings me great satisfaction. That's coming later, and of course we look ahead to Sunday's final. So it's Messi versus Mbappe, Argentina against France in the 2022 World Cup final, coming after four weeks of thrilling action in Qatar with so many surprises, so many highs and lows. Brazil exiting at the quarterfinal stage, Ronaldo bowing out on a low note for Portugal as he lost his place in the starting lineup, and Lionel Messi on the verge of finally winning the tournament with Argentina. And Morocco, the surprise team of the tournament, beating Portugal in the quarterfinals last weekend,、uh, but not getting past France in the semis. Although they really had chances in that two-nil defeat, which could have given a different scoreline on a different day. So Morocco will play Croatia in the third-place match on Saturday, having become the first African team ever to reach the World Cup semi-finals. Well, France were too good for the Atlas Lions there, but、uh, what a journey for Morocco, Ida! What a journey, indeed, Steve. Morocco definitely exceeded expectations because coming into this, I think the eyes of anyone interested in Africa was pretty much on the Teranga Lions of Senegal, you know, and not necessarily on the Atlas Lions. And when you looked at Morocco, I mean, their drama in the months preceding the World Cup. Well, it didn't exactly inspire confidence, but they seemed to put all that behind them as they beat Belgium, Canada, Spain, and Portugal on the way to becoming the first African and Arab country to reach the semi-final. Now, to add to this, no opposition player had scored against them until at least the semis. Steve, they were definitely outclassed in that showdown with France, but they held their own, and they can take away key lessons and points to improve on. Mainly, at least to me, their execution in front of goal. I mean, many times we saw them stutter when, in a different situation, it probably could have been, you know, a proper attempt on goal or even a goal itself. Granted, the coach had to make do with some members of his backline out for presumably, you know, the biggest game of their lives. And you saw even the five-four-one formation he'd been using for a majority of the tournament. Well, that was reduced to a four-five-one, and that showed them up as a bit more porous than we'd previously seen. The Atlas Lions, Steve, are guaranteed a take-home of at least twenty-five million dollars. Something that can go up to 27 million. That is, if they finish third by beating Croatia. And beyond this is the immense, immense pride of a nation. I mean, they're heroes. 
And look, it's perhaps fitting that the same team that Morocco started this fairy tale run against in Qatar is the same team they'll end with, Croatia. Yeah, it's a really memorable stuff uh, from Morocco. What do you think that uh, the Atlas Lions run at this World Cup might do for African football, Ida? Well, Steve, many think Morocco's World Cup achievement is the country starting its journey. And they fail to realize that the North Africans are simply continuing. Continuing what they started over 10 years ago in 2009, when the country undertook the continent's biggest investment in football. And definitely something that even other continents can admire and learn from. The Moroccan Football Federation, well, it opened its National Football Academy, the Mohammed VI Football Academy, at over $65 million, and it's since produced top talent. They've invested over $20 million in women's football, with specific numbers expected of the country's women to be involved in football in the next few years. Morocco is currently, Steve, let's not forget, the only nation in the world to have two tiers of women's football that are both fully professional. The country's stadiums have hosted, and sometimes controversially so, the biggest continental events because of their infrastructural capacity. Steve, it's been an incredible liaison, has to be said, between the Federation President Fauzi Lecture and the royal family. And for anyone who's been interested, the signs have been there to show us what was in store for Morocco. I mean, Chan winners, a Wafkan final, a first Women's World Cup qualification where, look, no doubt, the ladies will definitely go in with some level of pressure in light of recent events. <laughs> the CAF Champions League, the Confederation Cup, Steve all in Morocco. Look, they say hindsight is twenty twenty, and when you really think about it, Morocco's performance should not have come as the shock that it did. Steve, a big part of the discussion has been about how a large number of the current squad, 14 or 16 players, depending on who you ask and where you look, <laughs> uh, they were born outside of Africa. You look at the coach, and even he is Parisian-born. But many also fail to mention that Regragi regularly visited Morocco as a child, hence his familiarity. He even speaks a local dialect, and he now lives in Casablanca. This is a man who represented the country at the national level. I mean, everything about Moroccan football, Steve, has been visionary. It's all been about building on the now to reap in the future. So what has this run done for Africa, Steve? Well, it raises the bar, it raises the mindset, and shows that African countries need to plan and work towards success and not just wish for it. I mean, you can have the best players, you can have the best coaches, but if there isn't a strong network and a proper plan to support that, then things can only go so far. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ida. Next week on the show, we'll take more time to analyse and assess how the World Cup was for Africa as a whole. 
Well, next year on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport to social media, and we've been asking for your thoughts on Facebook and on WhatsApp throughout the tournament. And, of course, Morocco, the biggest talking point over the last couple of weeks. We heard from France, from Godfrey Amagoule, who says, I believe that uh, one day, one year, Africa will win the world's most prestigious football tournament. Uh, Morocco, though, have uplifted African pride, despite being more inclined to the Arab world than to Africa, says Godfrey. Uh, thanks for that. That's a big talking point. Uh, many feeling that uh, Morocco would identify as uh, being an Arab nation as well as an African country, and uh, no doubt about uh, that. And they have said, I think, as a whole, that they've been playing for both the Arab world and for Africa. Uh, Sideko Suno from the Gambia says Morocco really impressed me, and they made all of the Africans proud. Uh, the player that impressed me most is their midfielder, Azadin Unahi. And there's always next time says Sideko. Uh, thanks for that one. Uh, Brown Macknell is in Australia saying outstanding effort from Morocco and a Belong Badgie in the Gambia says it should have been Cameroon doing best at the World Cup for Africa but Morocco have been the best African team despite not making it through to the final. They attack and defend confidently and have a burning desire which I like most but with the game against France in the semis it didn't work well for them. Uh, congratulations and better luck next time to Morocco says Balong. And uh, finally Cherno Jallo in the Gambia says Morocco all the way. Congratulations to the Atlas Lions for getting as far as the semi-finals. And also Cherno points out that a Stewart was optimistic about Africa's chances when we looked ahead to the tournament uh, uh, quoting their Stewart saying I think an African team can go very far uh, because of the likely Heard of upsets. Uh, this was a Stuart statement prior to the tournament, says uh, Cherno. Well, thanks very much for reminding us of that one. We'll hear from Stuart shortly on the show. Uh, this week on social media, we're asking, what are your reflections on Africa's performance at the World Cup? So as the World Cup ends this weekend, what's your assessment of how Africa performed at this edition? Is Morocco's run all the way to the semi-finals a sign that African football has progressed? What do you think about how the other African teams did? And are things going in the right direction? You can post a comment on our Facebook page, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. What are your reflections on Africa's performance at this World Cup? Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, Stuart looks ahead to the World Cup final, and we hear from 2002 World Cup winner Kaká of Brazil. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA, and you can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download the app, you go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. And our website is planetsport.tv and there you can read Russ Bravo's blogs on the World Cup. Uh, they include why we need to expect the unexpected and also a blog on penalties and the route to glory. That's on our website, planetsport.tv, in the blog section. 
Well, next, let's go to Stuart Weir, who's in the UK following the World Cup from there. And as we've highlighted on the show, this is a different kind of World Cup, with it being played in November and December, and in a small country which doesn't have a footballing history of note. Uh, now, Stuart, you went to four FIFA World Cups in a row from 2002 up to 2014. Uh, so tell us, how does Qatar compare? And what are your reflections on those tournaments that you went to? Well, the first World Cup that I went to, as you say, was 2002. That was played partly in Korea and partly in Japan. I was based in Tokyo and saw four group stage games. The highlight was seeing Japan beating Russia 1-0. Never seen an atmosphere like that when the Japanese crowd went wild when Inamoto scored what proved to be their only goal. And that was certainly something that Qatar didn't experience because their team didn't actually win any of the games. I also saw England play Nigeria in a rather dull nil-nil draw. Now, being based in a city of more than 10 million people, you couldn't say that the World Cup dominated the city. And of course, football is probably not the strongest sport in Japan. So in that way, it's a little bit like like, like Qatar, but um, uh, in, in a much bigger city. 2006, I was in Germany, where you would definitely say that the World Cup was dominating everything with really high expectations that Germany, beaten finalists in 2002, could use home advantage to go one better. And there was real disappointment when Germany went out in the semi-final. I saw Brazil beat Croatia with a spectacular goal from Kaká. But the 2002 World Cup winners were beaten by France. And so Brazil uh, didn't manage to retain their trophy. Talking of Kaká, I've had the privilege of interviewing him twice. And just a really nice guy alongside everything else promised to give us an hour for an interview, turned up on time, stayed beyond the hour. So, well done him. And the games I was watching in Germany were in Berlin, in the iconic 1936 Olympic Stadium. And it was really something of an experience to be there. Yes, that's a historic stadium. We'll hear from Kaká shortly here on Planet Sport Football Africa. And Italy won the 2006 World Cup, beating France in the final on penalties. That was the game where Zinedine Zidane was famously sent off for a headbutt in extra time. And a Stuart 2010 was another of the World Cups that you attended, the time that the World Cup came to Africa, to South Africa. Well, I was in Cape Town and really had the best experience of my life watching five group games, a last 16, a quarter-final and a semi-final, seeing Spain, the eventual winners, beating Portugal in the last 16, and then Netherlands beating Uruguay in the semi-final. I also saw two of the African teams with Algeria drawing nil-nil with England, Cameroon losing to... Netherlands by a lit goal, but with Samuel Eto'o, such a legend, scoring for Cameroon. I saw Portugal score seven, and yes, Ronaldo got one of them. And I loved the Greenpoint Stadium, constructed specially for the World Cup. And the nearby waterfront shopping mall was filled with fans from seemingly every country, enjoying being in South Africa as much as the football. I even saw one of the England players shopping in the mall. 
Perhaps the most memorable game for me was Germany beating Argentina 4-0 in the quarter-final. Maradona was manager of Argentina, but he got his tactics wrong as his team were overrun. And one amusing moment in that game was when Germany scored, the watching head of state, Angela Merkel, stood up to cheer and was promptly told by a FIFA official that standing was not allowed. You, know, you may be the Chancellor of Germany, but you still got to sit down. And then, Steve, 2014, you and I were together in Rio Janeiro. And if any country in the world is dominated by football, it was Brazil. Remember how even the supermarkets would close if Brazil were playing because everyone wanted to watch. And, of course, the iconic Maracanã Stadium was walking distance from where we were staying. And while I was privileged to see some great games, I saw Messi scoring for Argentina. I saw Spain winners in 2010 losing to Chile, whose fans sang the whole match. Ole, 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 Chile, Chile, Chile. Then we saw Germany beat France in the quarterfinal, uh, just 1-0, but then they scored seven against Brazil in that semi-final. And the nation had such high hopes for the home team, but Germany had put five goals past them in the first half. It was a Brazilian team with great attacking flair, but a brittle defence. And it's hard to describe the reaction, see, remember, the shock, the shame, because football is so much part of life in Brazil. Yes, that World Cup in Brazil in 2014 was amazing. The passion of the fans was amazing. Uh, the home support, incredible. And it was such a great experience being there myself as well, uh, getting to meet fans from so many different countries, especially uh, on the Copacabana Beach uh, in Rio de Janeiro, which was a great focal point and a gathering point at that World Cup. Uh, 2010 was unforgettable too. I was in South Africa. Uh, the atmosphere, especially in the days leading up to the start of the tournament, Absolutely amazing. There was the pride of people in South Africa at uh, hosting the World Cup and uh, it brought the country together in a huge way as well. Uh, those some great memories uh, next here on Planet Sport Football Africa brought to you by Passion for Sport to our interview then from our archives with Kaká who as Stuart said was a World Cup winner with Brazil in 2002 and was the 2007 World Player of the Year. Well, Kaká is now retired after a career that saw him playing for AC Milan and Real Madrid, and he featured at three World Cups. He was much loved across Africa. I remember him playing here in Zimbabwe in a World Cup warm-up for Brazil, who played Zimbabwe just before the 2010 World Cup in a friendly match. Well, Kaká has also been very open about his faith as a follower of Jesus. And in this first part of our interview with Kaká, he talks about his memories of winning the World Cup. I was 20 years old at the time, and it was my first World Cup in 2002. I played for 25 minutes in a match against Costa Rica, but I felt like a world champion. It was a short experience, time-wise, but the experience I had among the 20 or 23 players of that national team was really great. For me, it was really special to be among that group and to have been world champion in 2002. It brings me great satisfaction, and I'm really happy to be able to say that I participated in the fifth time the Brazilian national team won the World Cup. 
Eu tava na beirada do campo para entrar naquela final. É, o Filipão me chamou. I was on the sideline, waiting to enter in that final, when our national coach, Filipão, called me and told me to go on. There were five minutes left to the end of the match, so I quickly changed and waited on the sideline. Brazil was already winning 2-0, and Germany had already lost any hope of winning. Brazil began to pass the ball, and the ball wouldn't leave the pitch. When the referee blew the final whistle, I ran onto the field, and the only thing I could do was to glorify and to thank God. I knew the whole world was watching that game. Millions and millions of people, all glued to the television. The great emotion of being world champion was almost too much, so I ran into the field to glorify God and hugged my teammates. Edmilson and Lucio and I prayed together and it was a really fantastic and amazing thing. Well, now let's go back a couple of years before that World Cup because Kaká had an accident that could have brought his career to a premature end. Well, in 2000, I played for the San Paulo junior team. We were in the middle of the Paulista junior championships when I received a yellow card. I was suspended for the following game, so I took advantage of the free weekend to visit my grandparents, who lived in Caldas Novas at the time. They don't live there anymore, but they lived in Caldas Novas at the time, which is a city in Brazil known for its thermal waters and water parks. My brother, my parents, my grandparents and I went to one of these water parks. As I was coming down one of the slides into the pool, I was in front of my brother who was just behind me. When I came down the slide, I hit my head on the bottom of the pool and my neck snapped. I fractured the sixth vertebra in my neck. At the time, I had no idea what happened. I came out of the pool with a strong headache and my brother, who had come down the slide right after me, asked me what happened. I told him I hit my head on the bottom of the pool. He touched my head and saw that I was bleeding. He convinced me to go to the first aid centre because my head was bleeding. From there, we went to the hospital where they took an x-ray of my neck to see if everything was okay. According to the x-ray, everything looked fine. I got a few stitches in my head and that was that. I returned to São Paulo to train on Monday as well as on Tuesday, all the while with a broken neck. On Tuesday, when I couldn't stand the pain, I called the coach and the physical trainer and told them that I couldn't bear the pain any longer. They sent me to see a doctor at the hospital where they took another x-ray. It was in this x-ray that the fracture in the sixth vertebra was shown. Everyone, including the doctors, told me I was very lucky that nothing more serious happened. They told me that I could have become paralyzed and lost my ability to walk and to play football. This was a great experience in my life because I believe it was not luck. I believe God was protecting me during that time from anything more serious. So did that accident affect Kaká's faith? Many people think that I became a Christian after the accident, but that isn't true. 
I was raised in a Christian home, and my parents, who are evangelicals, are also Christians. Since I was a child, they taught me and raised me with biblical values. This is just one of the many thousands of experiences I have had with God, but it was a very strong and clear experience in life. The accident happened in October of 2000, while I was playing in the base position on the San Paulo junior team. Throughout November and December, I had to wear a neck brace and couldn't play. I began to play again in January of 2001, and after about 10 or 15 days, I was called to play for the San Paulo professional team. Because of this, I don't think it was a coincidence. I believe God had a purpose in that accident. Something that happened just before I had the great blessing of starring as a professional in San Paulo and initiating my career as a professional football player. Well, that is Kaká, who won the World Cup with Brazil in 2002, at the second part of this interview on the show next week. And now before we go on this week's edition of A Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, let's go back to this edition of the FIFA World Cup. It's Argentina against France in Sunday's final. Uh, what are your thoughts, Stuart? Well, I think as we reach the end of the 2022 World Cup, I feel very positive about it. It's been a good World Cup. It's important to remember it's a cup competition. Some languages uh, call the World Cup literally the World Championship, but it's a cup competition where the luck of the draw and which team you happen to play uh, makes a big difference. Now, most of the group stages were clear-cut, except Germany, Uruguay and Mexico all eliminated on goal difference. In the round of the 16... Morocco and Croatia progressed on penalties, but five of the ties were clear-cut, with the winners having at least a two-goal margin. The quarterfinals could hardly have been tighter, with Croatia beating Brazil and Argentina beating Netherlands only on penalties. That was the game of the 18 yellow cards. Can you believe it? 18 yellow cards. And incidentally, Steve, I think Netherlands must hate the sight of Argentina because they lost to them in the 1978 final, the 2014 semi-final and now the 2022 quarter-final. The other two quarter-finals, we saw Morocco beating Portugal by a single goal and France beat England 2-1 but England missing a penalty. The two semi-finals were pretty clear-cut, Argentina winning 3-0, France 2-0. I think it's hard to argue with the view that Argentina and France are simply the two best teams in the World Cup. Both teams lost a game in the group stages. Argentina, I remember, were shocked by Saudi Arabia in their opening game. France lost to Tunisia, but that was after they'd already qualified and Didier Deschamps was resting quite a lot of his first-choice players. And Argentina did need penalties uh, to win that game over Netherlands. Teams that disappointed me would be Portugal. They scored 12 goals in their first four games, but then couldn't find one goal against Morocco. Spain disappointed in a different way. For all their talented players, they only managed three goals in four games. Brazil won their group, scored four in the round of the 16 against Korea, but couldn't break down Croatia. So all of those teams we might have expected more from, but Argentina and France did what they needed, won the difficult games, progressed, uh, and I think they have every right to be there. 
Interestingly, the final pits arguably the two best players in the world against each other. Lionel Messi for Argentina and Kylian Mbappé for France. Now, Messi has been brilliant. Mbappé hasn't really shone yet, so perhaps he's keeping it to the final. But also I think there's pressure on Messi, because if he is to get the recognition as the world's greatest ever player, alongside Pelé and Maradona, he needs to be a World Cup winner. And you would think at 35, this will be his last chance. Yes, it's very likely to be uh, Messi's last chance for glory at the World Cup. And uh, what else have you got for us, Stuart? Well, Steve, one of the things that's happened as a result of uh, World Cup performances is that coaches leave their jobs. And already we've seen the Brazilian coach uh, Tite has lost his job. Uh, Netherlands, Louis van Gaal. Mexico, Gerardo Martino. Belgium's Roberto Martinez. Ghana's Otto Addo. Korea, Paulo Bento, Spain's Luis Enrique have all left their job. And frankly, I would not be surprised to see another five or six uh, in the next week or two uh, as they consider their position. Now, Steve, I wonder if you knew that there were 135 Premier League players on World Cup duty. Manchester City had the largest number, 16. And clubs are paid by FIFA $10,000 per day for each player for the time he's at the World Cup. Now, in Manchester City's case, that means FIFA will pay them about $5.5 million. And at the other end of the scale, Bournemouth and Southampton each had two players and they will get about $400,000 each It's nice money to get, but of course the clubs are paying huge wages to players who are away for a month. Well, interesting that. Uh, Thanks a lot, Stuart. Uh, So it's Argentina-France on Sunday in the final of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Uh, Looking forward to that one. But that's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi, and from Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.